There's a kind of gleeful naivety to Manson's Six, how it wears its awkwardness and its inspiration so literally on its sleeve, and yet so cryptically within the twists and turns of its music. For Tim Dello and me, both first-person witnesses to its 1998 release and the sense of wonder and possibility it seemed to represent, it's more than just a record. It's an event from our pasts that from distance we still see the ripples of. A moment signposting our total submission to a life of music with all the joys and frustrations that it would go on to mean for us. In subsequent years, while I stuck with my guitar, Tim put his down, first in order to put out seven-inch singles of his friend's bands, and then before long progressing that enterprise into the full-blown London-based record label Transgressive, a decade later now home to, amongst others, Foles, Mystery Jets and The Antlers. As soon as Tim picked six, I knew it would be an undertaking to really get to the bottom of it in one episode, but as you're about to hear, we gave it a go. The contradictions this record throws up are really the essence of what it is to love music, to believe in the myth of rock and roll, to immerse yourself in something that's beautiful and ridiculous at the same time. Great records are about the head and the heart and also the hips. This one speaks volumes to all three. Hopefully we skim the surface of its importance to us at least. The kind of gloriously crap Britishness of it. It's perplexing oddness, but importantly the way it's entwined into our histories. And in fact somehow itself remains stuck in the past. An anomaly that may never again mean to anyone quite what it meant to the two of us. So, my guest today is Tim Dello. Hi, Tim. Hi, how's it going? I've known Tim for quite a few years. We first met, in fact, you put on the first gig that I played. I don't know if you remember that I, that was I, my I, first gig. At the Verge in Kentish Town. It was the first gig I put on as well, which is why there was hardly anyone there, so yeah. I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was absolutely petrified, and that's a whole story in itself. Um, for me, it was an audience, so it was scary. So, I don't know if more people would have made it more scary, so maybe that was a good thing. You've been running transgressive now for how long that's our 11th year this year wow so you've got a good history in the music industry you've discovered some pretty well-known bands down the years i think you're well placed to discuss a record from the 90s yeah definitely given that our this was the era we were discovering records yeah i think this is a really nice period as well because i still get shivers down my spine with new records and really enjoying stuff as well but i think a lot of the romanticism before I saw how records were made and about like personal dynamics between bands and all of those different things that you come to learn being in the industry and stuff as well. These records in this period have a kind of innocence and just excitement for me as well, which are nostalgia, I guess, which it's is... the pre-cynical years. Exactly, exactly. Although we'll talk about this because the record that you've chosen, partly off maybe off seeing my list, which is my wish list of records that I want to talk about, you picked Six by Manson. Yeah. And I think... Cynicism is a, is a good one of the things that we could maybe uh, touch on in this record because I think like, there's a little bit of that in the lyric and the story of the record and kind of what happened to Manson as an idea and a band after this record. But tell me first of all your story about how you came to Manson because yeah. for me it was like around about wide open space, you know, they were getting yeah. on TV and like on the radio and I wasn't totally sure by that stuff, but I was definitely drawn in by what they did. That was an exciting time for me. I think, you know, as a record for choosing for this programme, I thought it would be good to do because lots of those other 90s records that are maybe slightly better taste, shall we say, <laughs> I kind of came to later. And, you know, I'd love to sit here and talk about post-rock all day, and I love a lot of those records, but it's probably not as true as this experience. And I think the thing that made this so exciting was... I was caught up like a load of young English guys in Britpop and how exciting that was as an idea, but also feeling a bit like, at that stage, an outsider and uh, a lot of the things I really loved and a lot of the more like interesting elements of Britpop, like you know a song like Blur's Sing or something like that, they were speaking to kind of outsiders. And although there was this great community spirit coming with Britpop and the excitement of being part of a gang and part of a larger crowd, it was tougher to identify with all those people. I think when I heard Manson for the first time, 
on Attack of the Grey Lantern, their first record, you'd hear a song like The Chad Who Loved Me, which opens with these like beautiful strings, and it goes into this really kind of like dark, I guess U2 influenced kind of, <laughs> um, I mean, I hate U2, but you know, I'm going to go with that. I didn't know at the time, but it's, it felt so like alien and like one of the lines on that record is like, are you, are you happy now that your shit just tastes as sweetly as mine? And as a young, impressionable boy finding out about kind of good taste, higher art, sexuality, everything, like all these things, that, that was like a compelling and exciting thing that sort of set them apart I think okay so actually like the voice of the artistic voice for want of a better term or at least like Paul's kind of persona mm. that really appealed to you as like an adolescent at that time yeah definitely I think it's a if I was going to introduce them to anyone as a teenager it would be good because I think a lot of the people especially seeing the good taste of other people that have done this with you before I think it's a tougher sell for an adult and I think that Six is a good album to focus on because there's tons to appreciate in terms of its uniqueness. We can make parallels towards kind of Beefheart-esque ideas and it's a prog record and there's all sorts of confusing things but I also think one of the best times to absorb and be introduced to Manson is adolescence and at a point where you're feeling awkward and you don't right. mind that someone else is maybe a bit awkward as well. Yeah, I suppose for me I was probably maybe a little bit older so I was kind of like at college and it wasn't so much like the emotional side of it, although for me, yeah, if you compare Six to Attack of the Grey Lantern, it's definitely a more kind of raw, like, heart on the sleeve. It's pretty brutal, yeah. yeah. Um, record. I like the humour in it as mm. well. I liked the the kind of references, the illusions in it. You mentioned some of the other episodes of, of Exploded Drawing. To be honest, this is the first one I'm genuinely very excited to talk about a record that was part of my... Bringing. It really mm. was. We've done PJ Harvey and Fugazi, and these are so credible bands mm. and musicians that I, I love and can talk about. But this is a, a record that meant a lot to me personally, so I was really excited that you, you picked it. I think the story of Manson, though, leading into Six, you do have to kind of take in everything they did before mm. um, to sort of contextualise where yeah. they were. I've been looking at some old YouTube stuff t um, before this uh, of them. Um, I came across this thing which is. Um, Manson sort of Mark One playing at King Tut's in Glasgow. Right, is that with a drum machine or no, just well, first drummer? They've got a drum loop playing. There's a drummer playing along, and there's a guy doing keys and <laughs> stuff in the background. I think he's where he's got suits. like a. I don't know, I no, this suits. is pre-boiler pre suits. This is their sort of Britpop kind of years. Okay. Ninety-five, and they're wearing tracksuits. <laughs> okay. Right, yeah. and it's like. You can kind of see there's this scally northern thing, which I yeah. think they had, obviously, through six, that kind of, that went away. Mm. But that scally northern kind of, the character. So, yeah, stuff. so, I, and I think when I first identified with Manson as well, I think they were quite punk because you'd buy, um, they always did really good EPs around every record. Yeah. And even on the singles, the first ones, a lot of the tracks of those first demos and first live things made like things like Florella and stuff like that, which I think in their head were like the Sex Pistols, and now they probably haven't dated so well. But um, they were all kind of like angsty and character pieces, and not yeah. singing about the self so much necessarily. Well, but. if you listen to Attack of the Grey Lantern, which is their first record, and I feel like we may be introducing this band to to like some of the audience because, you know, I live in Austin now, and I don't know anyone who who would know who Manson were there. <laughs> so for, for those <laughs> of you... I'm so know, sorry, Austin. <laughs> <laughs> but they weren't one of those Britpop bands that people, you know, I've toured America, and people go, oh, you're into Britpop, and they will mention, you know, bands on creation or, or mm -hmm. whatever. Manson aren't a band that come up very much. Yeah. Um, but they definitely had this sort of shape-shifting thing that they did mm -hmm. from the beginning. So Scallies, tracksuits... That doesn't seem totally jarring if you listen to the music from that period. You know, Chad's wearing, like, the John Lennon glasses. But apart from that, that's the only kind of nod to psychedelia. <laughs> then, of course, you know, the boiler suits, that was sort of a bit more punky. And yeah. you could correlate them with Supergrass there early Yeah, stuff. I think there's definitely shades of that. And then, of course, by the time you get to six, so we're jumping quite a long yeah. way through, even though this is only a couple of years in sort of rock timeline they become a bit more like the manic street preachers sort of glam yeah thing, the 
they kind of bowers. they kind of like lost it in a good way. I think that one of the things that's really interesting from like an industry point of view is Attack the Grey Lantern in the UK at least was a massively successful album. It was a number one record. Yeah, we and forget it, that, and don't it, we? And it was a prog record. Like it opens with almost an instrumental. Mm. The closing track, Dark Mavis, aside from the secret song, is a is like a ten minute epic. It has these weird character pieces. All the tracks flow together, and they produce that together, or Paul produced that, uh, depending on who you ask. Mm. And that was that was like a big thing, and apparently as well, um, that was one of the biggest influences on a very tasteful album of uh, Radiohead's OK Computer. And they oh, would, really? they'd done the bands, they heard Manson do that, they saw them have success with them, and they were like, great, we can do anything now. And that really influenced that stage. So I think then sitting there, you know, in the situation where bands are, you kind of have two things, you either rebel against mm. the last album you've made and try and make something totally opposite in a different direction, which they kind of did on their much derailed third album, or you push the extremes even further. And I think with Six, it's like egos were high, confidence was at its peak. Budgets must have been high. <laughs> Budgets were and, and this is something I wanted to ask you about. I just think everything's changed so much. Yeah, like, oh my God. Okay, Manson were on Parlophone, which is sort of part of EMI. They had big budgets to work on, and they must have for this record. Quite aside from, you know, whether or not you're having like string sessions, there's this footage, I don't know if you've ever seen it, of a guy playing a glass harp. Right on for inverse Midas. Oh, beautiful track. I was going to talk about that track, but lyrically as well, it's yeah. incredible. They recorded it at Olympic in Barnes, which is no longer with us. Um, but again, a big budget studio, yeah. a daily rate, having those kind of sessions. And you know, this glass harp stuff doesn't even make it on the record. You know, it's almost like you're into it's Brian just a Wilson, piano, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you're almost into Brian Wilson era. Like, well, let's try a glass harp, and then you spend three days tracking it and you don't use it. So one of my favourite things, this this doesn't, well it might still exist, but in my experience there was a period where we worked uh, with the major as transgressive and one of the things that was a role that I think has maybe been absorbed by A&Rs now was there was an A&R admin person who essentially did all of the work for A&R guys, which I've never personally um, had but it's always fascinating. I can just imagine these poor kind of like much put upon people making a phone call on behalf of Paul Drake being like right I need a harpsichord I need Tom Baker yeah the one from Doctor Who I need him <laughs> I need <laughs> like just going through the list of these crazy requests one of the things which is fascinating about this record is that when you read about it you discover that they didn't have any songs at all going into yeah. it they had like Fantastic. half a song going into the record and they'd booked Olympic and he was writing as they went, and they recorded pretty much in the order that he'd written That's the what I'm talking about. So two intersections. Technologically, Pro Tools was coming in for the first time, mm -hmm. which made this like a possibility. But also, for a, a pop record, in inverted commas, to do something so um, experimental, that's kind of improvisation within the confines mm. of a popular song. And you can hear, particularly in the first half of the record, section, 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 finding feet, finding feet, like a song like... Um, Shotgun fairly mm. early on in the album. It was always one of my least favourites as a kid. Okay. In, uh, it, interestingly, because I thought it was a bit zany. Yeah. Um, and also, there's the nod to um, that Carol King song, Shotgun, as well, which um, I think, like, I was maybe kicking okay. against a little bit as well. Now I kind of appreciate it as a nice little uh, songwriting nod. Mm. Now, the closing areas of that song are probably my favourite thing on the whole of six. I think it's just a masterpiece, oh, but. Yeah. but you find your feet with them. It's like when you listen to a Zappa record, something like Uncle Meat or something, you have to wade through a few bits mm. that you're not going to get in order to get sure. literally 20 seconds that you're going to really love. <laughs> you look at a song like Shotgun, you look at a song like Cancer, like there's two moments in Cancer which I would say are probably some of the greatest things ever recorded by anyone ever. Wow. But it's also surrounded... <laughs> wow, I know. That's I'm a claim. But it's also surrounded by a lot of crazy babblings about yes. it and, and you have to lock in and love it. Um... But yeah, the budget thing just it just blows my mind. They had a number one record, so I think that's the context yeah. in it. They had had a number one record, so a label's going to go, okay, fair enough. You did your thing, you, you produced this record pretty much. We'll trust you and see where we are in a few months or whatever. Yeah. Aside from the studio rates, the, the clock ticking as the days go by and the writing in the studio and the session musicians, there's all these samples that they've had to buy. You know, there's the Sky News, that sample in television. Yeah, yeah. They've had to buy off News International, and he claims, without mentioning a figure, it cost a fortune just to get that sample. And then you've got all these Hanna-Barbera samples that are in Shotgun that you've mentioned. Of course, yeah. And the Sugar Plum Fairy, they've had to... <laughs> you, 
<laughs> sugar plum fairies on there. But that's a perfect example. Like I remember hearing that and thinking as a kid, well, maybe they've gone too far. And then by the end of the song, you're like, this is a masterpiece. for anyone who is saying, what are you talking about? Who are you talking about? What is this crazy record that you're discussing? Manson were from Chester in the north of England. It's kind of a mixture of working class and sort of very middle class yeah. footballers, wives type kind of environs, I guess. Um, the Essex of the north. But I think it, that's one thing that really throws some light on where this band come from, sort mm -hmm. of mentally, is that it's it is kind of a middle class you know there's an art college there yeah. which i applied to I think, no it was on my uh, backup mm. choices chester people will know it as like where hollyoaks yeah set. exactly um and yet it's kind of an extension of like not liverpool exactly but it's like people speak with that sort of scouse mm. accent there it's the north you know yeah. manson were a band that did very well on what was in itself an odd sounding record their mm. first record attack of the grey lantern but it was a, it's a much more pop Listenable, record. Yeah, yeah. It has singles on it yeah, yeah. now. Great singles. Yeah, and, and, and another one. Their breakthrough is Wide Open Space. It was, you know, this is mm. what, 97 or something? Yeah, yeah. 6, 97. Kind of summed up that sort of end of what Britpop was. Mm. The more like... Darker, I guess. Darker, well. but kind of fun at the same time. You know, there's a sense of humour to it. Oh yeah, humour is, from a class's point of view, taking kind of proper like working hard sense of humor and applying it 
not being afraid to be like pretentious and pushing themselves artistically and in terms of what they're reading and things like that it's like like the smiths i guess would be something i'd link to like obviously without the smiths the... are the best band and of course but, <laughs> but that... without the mass appeal let's say of the smiths oh, Christ. Christ. and hey. certainly without the kind of retrospective uh, affection that people have for the smiths where they're just there's no way you can say anything other than that, like they're a cool band mm. from the 80s but Manson almost kind of in a little bit of a bubble because they you could say they sound maybe a bit like Blur they were on the same label as Blur mm. all their early EPs it was just like there's a drum machine playing behind them mm. and like they seem to take a little while to find their sound and their sound doesn't really relate to anything that's going on around them I don't think no. you know we've mentioned some of these bands from that time Elastica was like my favourite and there's spiky elements but but none of them really yeah. you can't really kind of compare them to any of those bands no. and I think the records all sound like a, a it's a different mindset mm. it's like it's not punk rock it's psychedelic but not in a kind of free jazz kind of way no. it's, it's it's self-loathing psychedelia <laughs> I think because it's like it has all of those I think mushrooms would definitely play the big part in this record okay. along with probably a lot of cocaine <laughs> um, and um I think you get that sort of sense of things are possible and mm. ideas and stuff like that, but you also get this kind of massive crushing come down and self-loathing with it as well. But it's deeply sort of ironic, you know, and he would admit that. Like, it's this kind of stuff that never works in America. Yeah, he also Irony. had the, like, wink to camera every time, yeah. like, break the fourth wall, yeah. don't worry. It's so weird to kind of balance this, like, the nudge-nudge wink-wink mm. of it with this actually genuine cry for for like yeah. to be different and and not to conform i mean that's one of the things that he says this record is about non-conformity mm. if you can say it's about anything it's about going against the grain mm. um and being very genuine about that sort of sentiment beyond what that sounds like on paper to mm. write a record like actually this, i feel different you know being yeah. a girl which is the last track on the record mm. kind of sums up that from a lyrical point of view I want to experience being a girl, being a boy. How does it go? Being uh, a boy's boring. <laughs> boring. <laughs> Maybe something. I think he, he had the glib one-liners, but they're sort of hidden in there. There's one one track that's not on the record. That I think it might be on the Japanese edition of the album uh, called uh, "I Care," which was okay. a B-side at the time, which is one he doesn't talk about so much. Um, and that he's buried everything down in the mix. Mm. I think that kind of sums up what I think his mental point of view at the, at the, at the time. It's like about. Um, Hanging, hanging mirrors on his walls okay. to make his wor world seem big. And there's all sorts of other stuff in there that's like confusing, like he ha saying about how he wants to get fucked like a whore in the parlour and things like that, and weird like ups and downs. But, but I'm going to interrupt you there because I think that's a Chad song. Oh, really? And I think Chad wrote some of those lyrics, oh and he sings God, some of those lyrics. Right. So that that line which i knew was the line that would make me have to put like an explicit i'm like, sorry <laughs> well, well, i've done it before <laughs> i've done it before the listenership has gone down for manson once again <laughs> it was there for i think it's i want to get fucked like a whore in a porno actually. oh okay cool yeah, there's the uh the explicit while we're on language while we're on explicit inversions and things like that just thinking as well because obviously like a big american audience um the, I would urge everyone to get the UK version of the album because yes. in America they put out with the single version of Six at number one, which is like three minutes. Mm. They put Legacy right at the top of the album. They lost all of the interludes and I think they only did the edit of... Did they do that? They edited another couple of tracks as well. I, I haven't so. listened to that version. I read I about it. but I know it exists. Yeah. So seek out the full 70-minute psychedelic mess yeah, that's I can't in all good charity shops now for probably about 99p <laughs> on CD I can't imagine a different mix of this record and I don't know because they did do that with Attack of the Grey Lantern because I heard some guys on a podcast talking about it and they they had different copies of it right. and one was going I haven't even got this song on my version and so it, I, I think like yeah American label definitely yeah, yeah. really messed around with Manson's shit <laughs> which would have been probably a source of kind of mirth and also like frustration for them six was th this record that nobody was really expecting from this band i don't think mm. after attack of the great lantern which has that sort of cheeky quality but there's a lot of t things going on underneath just look at the track titles yeah. it's like veering like you know something like like cancer obviously stands out as a like centerpiece for the record and that's about you know 
religious uh, corruption and how it messes around with people. And then you get some brilliant contradictions as well. There's like lines about uh, the vinegar tasters and the ideas of different Eastern religions and how that plays into his own thinking. And it's a it's a mess of a person like screaming at the at the world in all different directions, but also having a bit of a laugh. As yeah, well. and it's I just remembering when this record came out because I'd been listening to Manson and I wasn't entirely convinced. Yeah. Mm. I still think there's something a bit cheesy about Manson. It's definitely cheesy. It's not. It's not a cool record. <laughs> it's yeah. a, it's um, something about an indie like... discos. You put if you go down to Camden on a Friday night and put on Wide Open Space or even Stripper Vicar or something like that. There's like a. It's like hey, it's, it has a right. kitsch, isn't it? It's a yeah. kitsch choice. Yeah. Not. It's not going to win cool points. Um, this album won't get you laid. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Hopefully not. <laughs> it's not necessarily the the production you know those sort of drum loop things that they have dated mm. which is their earlier stuff but actually the drumming an issue that i have with manson is the sound of the drums mm. which i always kind of have even on even on six yeah just that sort of tinny snare sound yeah, and the like the little like chinese symbols you can hear every, yeah. every now and again uh, you know it's a detail yeah I, no I that's admit. it's fair because i i mean it's a bit session drummer isn't it that kind of playing i think he i think he was originally brought in as a session drummer it was yeah. probably his yeah. his history with it and i i understand what you're saying but they do the same thing with the drums as they do with the vocals on something like six there's this different vocal treatment mm -hmm. on every line i think drum wise as well there was a lot of sample replacement you know, things fly in from oh, elsewhere. Yeah. There's oh, like yeah. little breakdowns, and I think he'd obviously been listening to probably Nine Inch Nails or something like that as well. And there's like those elements in there of like super gated drums, and it's it, it is an interesting sonic journey. Yeah, and I think that's fair, and I think it's successful. You know, I have slight niggles about the sounds, but that's just details. Uh, the drumming's fine, the parts, <laughs> the way they're written, I have no issue. Paul wrote some stuff himself on like drum machines and stuff was programmed in and you know Andy the drummer would play over it and like you say you know they would maybe sometimes want to phase around the yeah. hats or something all sorts of studio trickery which I don't think you'd bother with anymore no it's slightly overtouched as a record mm. but I think it's care as well I think that is a factor like or obsession and egomania mm. I listened to it again for the first I haven't listened to it in ages I put it on in preparation for mm. this on headphones um I was still hearing things that yeah. I must have listened to this album. Christ, I've wasted so much of my life on this album. <laughs> Lots of times. And um and uh there's still elements that kinda of come out that you don't you don't notice. Yeah. That's a, a rewarding thing. Being at boys by sucking at a lemon and I judge myself by the outfits I see my deodorant hides the appeal with these things elevate me above animals and feel like being a girl 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 yeah how am I like never taste it sweeter mistakes and it's just 
things happening on the fly. Mm. Like you think of a record that you know has maybe got that many tracks and this, you know, made so many decisions about panning and and you know harmonies and all. You'd think that that would be very planned out to the letter, but clearly, and <laughs> there's this blog which is a very good reference if you're interested in this record, which is Paul Draper's own like ten years later. This is how we made six, and it's very detailed, and it waffles and kind of goes on for almost <laughs> mentally ill tangents. But it's no better insight could you get into the, how this record was made. You know the fact that, as we mentioned, he was pretty much writing yeah, stuff it's in, it's and recording as those sections of music. And the first track is called Six. Mm. It's about eight minutes long, yeah. and it just, like many of the tracks on this record just suddenly goes into a new section. Yeah. He would write that and he would come into the studio and say, I've got another bit, and they would record it and then he'd go, well, I haven't got anything else. And then he'd disappear and yeah. write the next bit. One of my favourite moments of the record is probably the first second of the album where you just get, if you crank it up really loud, you just get someone like test the kick pedal maybe yeah. and someone says something really like, and then you just get Rolling. This, yeah, rolling. That's what you hear, rolling. And, uh, and out of that comes a captivating first piano riff I'm guessing or tr heavily yeah. treated guitar I think it's piano I think he had like the first minute of six mm. which is the title track the first track he had that and they knew they were going to record that so they just did a piano version of it first As you and know. then it segues into like their band version of it but yeah I mean this is another interesting thing about this record is it was intended to be a live sounding record mm. and that to me is like made pretty clear from these opening seconds, oh, that's buzz, the thing as just well. the amp buzz. It's mm -hmm. clearly like the sound of like of a live room mm -hmm. in a studio. So you're sort of drawn into this moment, which is the band's about to play, basically. But for something that we've obviously made sound quite impenetrable, the melodies are incredible. And like for, I feel one of the things that's captivating, interesting about this, and if you're into like loads of like math rock and things like that, they have this thing where, or or even someone like uh, Beefheart, something like no almost no repetition of really good ideas so you'll get these heavenly guitar riffs which other people would make hit singles from um, and they're moments and they pass and mm. you go into something that's maybe a bit stranger and and they just they keep entrancing you through it's yeah. it's, a, it's actually a, a beautiful record that's not that hard to listen to despite everything I, I agree and it's got some great parts like as a musician which I am, and you are. Of let's let's <laughs> remember, or were. I mean, you know, that you don't have to be a musician to listen to these yeah. records, or any record. But this was for me. This was from an era where I would sit down with a guitar, Quite with every record that I had, just to play along to it. And this was quite an undertaking. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's. I mean, I take my hat off. That's. Uh, yeah. Impressive. And I could do. I could do it. I think I could probably do it. Rolling. Then I'm done. <laughs> but you know, the first minute of six mm. is pretty straightforward mm. it's like these yeah, little muted chords and like a very simple melody there's guitar parts clearly some of them are chad parts you know their guitarist dominic chad comes up with the the kind of concise guitar mm. part doesn't he you know paul's obviously coming up with all the chords and he's yeah. directing everything but chad will come in and go i've got a part for this and he'll yeah. write it's the magic he'll write yeah. like a top line for the song, yeah. which sometime maybe even got there before Paul did in terms of like writing the top line for it. But that's, I mean, Paul, like obviously, because Chad has gone off the radar, so he doesn't have a voice in this conversation and people find these things. And so I think it's very easy for Paul to kind of run with it. And I think of like great songwriting partnerships in loads of the bands I've worked with, often the person that's attributed as the genius within the band uh, by the press and fan base and popular conservatives, often they, they are genius and they do have lots of the elements that all make something fantastic but then there's another band member almost every other time who'll have the tune or the one riff or whatever that thing is that makes it the great song that you love and obviously because he's owning this conversation now because no one else wants to talk about it it's hard for him to put that across i would think yeah no one, like one way traffic about his, cares about his legacy do they? it's just he's the only <laughs> he knew but clearly he knew that yeah, or yeah. at least he was singing about that yeah i think that's a fair point to bring up with this record we can talk about it being from the brain of one person I don't I just don't think that's fair and even if you know he's doing the lion's share of the creative work even if that is true you've still got to have a band personify the music mm. you know yeah, and that's yeah. true of any artist you know this is why great bands make great records and classic records are always like 
collaboration mm. of ways, not of particularly maybe seeing a song, but ways of at least playing them. Like mm. the the way you actually play the f the fretboard on the instrument, and you know all the dynamics that come from just the band in the room playing it. And uh, and he says he wanted to make a live record, so that must have been in yeah. in his mind and when he, they, they sat down. They were great players. I mean, if if the biggest insult we can level at the drummer is that he sounds a bit sessiony, it's not really that much of an insult, is no, it? So no, it's a very together sounding record despite everything. And and I think having the guts to go with someone as well, because I'm guessing at that stage as well, it was slightly different for our generation as performers and as people supporting performers. But back then, if you had a number one album, you'd have a load of cash suddenly and straight away and pressure for follow-up you know to go with someone along that journey and say let's go and record some of this here and then go on the houseboat and guess what the main themes of the album are going to be the prisoner which no one's seen for ages winnie the pooh and uh, oh yeah you can bang on about brian jones a little bit in interviews but you know mainly this is going to be it's basically uh, his satanic majesty's request isn't it if it was going to be a stones album <laughs> that's the <laughs> oh man i mean it's, it's better just... than that it is better than the that. band bits on this record are the best bits of music they ever did and you mentioned shotgun and that last three minutes of shotgun it's incredible. Actually is, incredible is probably one of the best pieces of music they ever did and and cancer was your other yeah, some one of those and i and i think that moment where the band kick in over the piano at the end of cancer that is, is probably there, like you say, transcendental, transcendental whatever it is it's incredible i wrote down it's like the first time listening to it recently or this week and to me it just sounded like you should have like footage of a rocket taking off when this kicks in it's almost it's like space ballet yeah moment. it's incredible i mean obviously influences by pink floyd but also if you're into like the last antlers record some of those kind of like more dreamy moments are represented on on this kind of record as well mm. it's, a, it's a props for sure to the band which i always make sure as a bass player i always make sure i put that in although the weird thing about this record is that the bass player Stowe didn't really seem to play on it. I get the feeling, like all. I don't want to kick anyone, but I think that the bass parts were mainly paid, played by Chad and Paul. From yeah, what I understand. and that's what he says. And there's actually again, there's some footage of them recording "Spasm of Identity," which is one of the B sides, and it's two bass lines, and Chad's doing like the hard one, and Stowe's just doing like the root notes. Yeah, and they're all sitting in the. It's quite mean. They're all sat in a room like where we are now, in the control room, looking through the glass at Stove playing and they're just going, he just can't play. Oh no, Why has he not sat down with records and spent more time like practicing? I mean, I only saw Manson play probably three, two or three I times. I saw him twice. Okay. Yeah, and it seemed like they were fine. Yeah, I mean, back then I was blown away. I saw them on the sixth tour actually, which is incredible. Yeah, I did. With they played early B-sides, most of the album, and some of Attack the Grey Lantern as well. So as a fan, I was like, mm. this is perfect. This is yeah. all of the elements that I want. And they did a lot of sort of, it seemed like open-ended sections. I think they were pretty well rehearsed, mm. like yeah, those kind of long versions. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, you can get some good, there's some good live recordings, actually. And even songs like, I've never really liked um, Taxos, for example. But yeah. the live versions yeah. of that you can get, which are like 10 minutes long, yeah. is actually it's pretty pretty good yeah I, I i agree they sound like the records as well which is it's a testament mm. given what went into this record yeah. actually they could what they did on stage is pretty much you know it's the same thing well, there was a great um article in i think it was like total guitar or something like that it was like chad was on the cover and he spends most of it talking about brian jones which in itself like got me really into the rolling stone so i haven't thanked for that he was also talking about the fact on the first album there were so many like synths and strings and things it was hard to translate that live on this one although his pedal ball was one of the most extreme ever i think he was like i want to make a record that i can play live and it sounds like the record and so you know incredible when you think about for most bands playing now there's so much backing track and so many triggered samples and things like that and that has become the norm um that's been the last sort of four or five years as a advancement for bands playing and what expectations are of modern audiences if you look at footage of kind of like when blur started out it, they were terrible live when manson started out they, they were terrible live as well and you sort of grew into it and learned and got better and better and i think that that's yeah. um an exciting factor of what made them like a real band as opposed to a boy band because they were in a sense a boy band as well which is yeah, a weird true. idea. Do you think that's gone away a bit? I mean clearly you know when I was 
going to sort of prompt you about budgets. I, 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 no label has these kind of budgets for rock records anymore, and probably you could argue shouldn't have at, at the time had those kind of budgets. You know, the bands that make records for you with you, um, there's expectations in terms of you know what's going to be spent, but they're definitely not going to have like a blank check and a okay going going to Do studio that. like that's it's so far the opposite now yeah. it's kind of silly now you've now got to make records but at home effectively but that's a that's a cultural thing as well though because i think it's a it's a dangerous thing to be too misty-eyed about the past like if we were doing this about i don't know how like the violent femmes first album was made for nothing or a pavement record or like all these records like until later were, mm. were really cheaply done i think part of it is a, a strange culture that happened around that time when all these bands and we talk about classism in the uk and stuff you had them essentially like working to like lower middle class band um in the uk who didn't come from like a fugazi discord credible indie culture they came from listening to the beatles and the sex pistols and they saw let's rinse the label as a thing and let's get as much money as we can let's quit our jobs let's do a load of drugs and let's have it yeah and, and yeah. that attitude i think but you can't do that anymore can <laughs> you that's God. the thing <laughs> Oh, you can. It's just really sad. I'm like, yeah, okay, go try and bankrupt the label. Oh, you've done it already. Good. <laughs> it's the it's the thing that's different. That's a different cultural. Yeah, thing. I think the essence of a great band is it doesn't matter whether you give them, yeah, you know, two hundred fifty grand or fifty p. They'll make a record that sounds great either way. Yeah. And I think the point of innovating is you've got limitations. You've always got limitations. Even Manson going into this record would have had limitations. I mean, for them, they would probably the fear was the limitations of what they'd actually written you know you could have olympic studio and it's open to you as long as you need it and you can have any musicians you want but what are you gonna do but you still need to have take some music in there it's so that's a that, re recipe for writer's block isn't it yeah and i think that's probably the moral of the story is that whatever the limitations are there's always going to be limitations so a band you're trying to innovate within those confines you know if you can't get an orchestra maybe it's about finding a sound on a keyboard that does something and i think like a band like everything everything is a really good yeah, yeah. example where they've gone let's just have like a naff trumpet sound like let's not go for the real trumpet sound let's just like innovate yeah. with that really have horrible trumpet representation of what a sound is yeah put, yeah why not yeah very meta strong one which is life is a compromise right life is a series of compromises and that's a very strong lyrical melodic part of the very front end of this record i think it's interesting what you say about pranking on the label which i think is 
actually an element of this that I hadn't really thought of, but I think there's probably got a lot of truth to that. Them just rinsing the label and saying, it's obnoxious. what will they let us get away with? Yeah, punks. But that is definitely punk. There's this kind of thing that's when you scratch away at like all this craziness that we talk about, the sonics and the arrangements and, and everything, that's like the voice that's mm. underneath. But I think you could argue is like the most kind of reliable witness of what's happening here. nearly as stark as you know the kind of holy bible stuff manic street preachers it's somebody kind of looking at the world from a quite sort of cut off position and going i don't recognize what's going on around me i feel like i'm in a sort of lonely viewpoint mm. this sort of self-hatred but also yeah. kind of do you hear that stuff i mean you Massively. say that I, yeah i think there's a like the thing that struck me is this is the first album where he doesn't do character songs like every other album everything up to that point all the singles they're all character studies or him expressing personal truths through a, like Get Out Claws character like Damon Albarn does in most of his stuff to this day this one is all I, I, I straight away mm. I think that there's something about the kind of pressure that he's feeling as an individual and there's so much smartness in it. as we said we, he pulled in Tom Baker doing a spoken word thing with the pretensions of calling it part two and there's probably not even a part one yeah. all these kind of things are in which there. foxed me for a while I thought there's a part one out there where are we going to hear think it it's just, I think even that like there's these it's little jokes and yeah. wind ups and they know how ridiculous it is and the cover is is awful oh, and God. brilliant. Um, that that'll take its own, <laughs> own podcast, podcast doing yeah. the artwork. You could go through, it and there's like all these things about the market decide and stuff. But I think what comes out of it is these things of like someone putting down the point at which they've been pushed to through personal experience mm. and the personal experience of being a band, personal experience of being a human being, pushing himself to all the limits. There's a lot of sexual deviancy throughout the whole record. There's a lot of literary and philosophical links to tons of stuff. Yeah. And even in his pop culture selections, things like Doctor Who and The Prisoner and Winnie the Pooh are all quite like dark, understated, underused tropes yeah. in themselves. And I think all of that coming out creates this moment where you, you have a conceit of what, how he knows he's come to this point, but then you have this glorious elements on the record, like on Legacy, like on Inverse Midas, where he's not afraid to actually say this is a genuine truth without the pretensions from my point of view in there. And that narration pulls you through. So at one moment he might be barking on about Vatican corruption, but 20 minutes later on the album he's just talking about how he's just absorbing all this stuff from the TV and he's just sat there as a used up coked up wreck basically and <laughs> and those things are um, did I do too much gag beautiful. <laughs> I mean well, the narrator even, is incredible I think yeah it's brave. I wonder if it's like it's intentionally obscured even though he seems unafraid of going to the edge and mm. And saying things that are like are oh, quite sort of. I'm emotionally uh, raped by Jesus. Well, I was going to mention that because you line. you talk about the the Vatican corruption, which is one of the themes of Cancer, the song, but it's immediately juxtaposed with the line "I'm emotionally raped by Jesus," which is like almost tongue in cheek. It's obviously not literal, but it just feels like it's so kind of raw that you have to either laugh at it and go, "That's mm. a bit silly," oh, it's ridiculous. or it's like if it's if there's some truth to it. It's scary, and I think that's what this whole record is kind of about, using all this sonic depth to almost kind of obscure these, like, real sort of painful mm. truths there are that are at the bottom. But, but there, I think they're tests, and I think the experiment of the improvisation and what's coming out, I think it's also a form of therapy from a linguistic point. Like the next line that follows that, emotionally raped by Jesus line, is, but somehow I'm still here. And I think that that's really important because the qualification of that line is that he's saying to the world here is something so offensive that if there were a god strike me down but actually i survive i am a man i'm a survivor i'm getting through this well they've As always a, had that counter documented here's yeah. me doing it they've always had that god stuff which i love and it's clearly like the roman catholic education of the time and like how people were brought up but like 
even on Attack of the Grey Lantern, you get, am I a god or am I just a man or whatever? And that's in the first track of, of that record. Yeah, I totally have that section of cancer as being like the emotional heart of the record, having listened through again this week. And I feel like that's the moment that's kind of the rawest and the, and the most sort of honest. I love that line, keep turning that cheek, you know. It's that, that whole section is, you know, as an excerpt, it's absolutely beautiful. And when that yeah. refrain comes back in again, the way that the music builds on that, it's I, I'm unafraid to say I used to cry to that wow. a lot because it's a it's a I know you know an impressionable teenager at the yeah. time, so it sort of gets to you. Was it immediate? I mean, I think the thing that I worry about playing tracks on this record in a podcast. Oh yeah, is it's, it's an awful record. You can't get a hold of this stuff <laughs> so on a single listen to it. Yeah. If I just said right, we're now going to listen to Cancer. I don't know how you would no. really. You have to dedicate seventy minutes of your life to listening to this. Like stick it on headphones, and that's the that's the thing. There's such a surplus actually of music out there, and it's so hard to focus on one thing mm. properly. I was reading a good book recently by um, David Grubbs of um, Pear Ruby fame, who's writing about um, how the actual act of recording destroying the listening experience of experimental and improvised music in the 60s and do a lot of John Cage stuff and that as well. He talks about the idea that if you repeat on a record and stuff, it kind of destroys that first experience of hearing right. it and it's not meant to be captured and stuff like that as well. But there's a great quote in it from a um, guy that guested in Sonic Youth for a bit as well, Jim, Jim O'Rourke. Yeah. Um, he says in the same book as well about how he always liked going over and over and finding the nuances in mm. even just the playing and I think this is a record that you can spend time with you can delve into like we've obviously listened to this far more than is healthy yeah but it's, and far it's more than probably most of the people who are listening to this <laughs> podcast have or maybe ever will but I kind of want to talk about it more than play it because I just don't think it's, that's the mm. weird irony about this record you think it's music like how else do you describe what it's about you just play it well listener you have to go and take this yeah, record away take, yeah it's an hour and ten minutes of your life just do it it's mm. it's incredible don't read at the same time don't watch anything else <laughs> yeah don't just try and read it. that manson blog don't try and read the, the paul draper yeah. blog about it because like he's so detailed about the timings and what what <laughs> guitar he was playing and like what pedal they were using that you just you end up not even listening to the music you're trying to you know so this is going to take a few hours of your life to to get into we should talk a bit about the philosophies that supposedly kind of you know you have definitely touched on you know the Winnie the Pooh thing which comes from the A.A. Milne book which I actually gave to my daughter who was a six a year ago I gave it as a six it's now we are six isn't yeah it? The, so the amazing. book is now we are six and it's really poems about turning six which is crazy but of course. it applies to every age I think as well that's the thing yeah. it's like one of those happy prince books that you can read into your 60s yeah The Prisoner which is an obscure 60s TV show where the protagonist is called Six, right? Yeah. He he can't physically escape. He's this, and this is the, like the key theme of the records where he he wakes up in this very pleasant utopia, I guess, and can't escape it. And every time he gets mm. to a certain point, he's kind of absorbed by this weird ball thing. Yeah. But it's kind of surreal, but it's, it's great. It's psychedelic, but it, it seems like one of the chief kind of inspirations for this record in regards to like authority mm. and knowing who you are. Mm and understanding like whether you are trapped and yeah. what the future is going to be mm. you know but it's being trapped by society and all these things but also talking about this more and more i feel like maybe it's being trapped by yourself as well yeah it's and like i think that's part of it you know you you go into this record and it's kind of almost like a closed maze mm. you, you're running around corners trying to find a way out of it mm. or something you know do you know um i've not i have to say aside from it being linked to buddhism like like taoism is apparently mm. a big thing in this record well what's crazy about all of this stuff is when you dig into it it, it comes as much from chad apparently mm. that chad was carrying all these books around he had the Tao of Pooh mm. and there's various other books which are not only listed on the blog but they're on the cover mm. of the record yeah and one of them is like the Tom Baker autobiography and the market decides well, which I think is interesting as well because that's about responsibility and transgressions and yes. as much as it is about anything else. And, yeah. But Paul sort of admits to not having read a lot of these books. He said Chad was the one reading these books. <laughs> I just took good lines. <laughs> and he would look at what Chad was reading, and apparently he had like a duffel bag with all these books, and he would borrow them and dip through them, and just take out the stuff that seemed relevant, but not 
really read and get into mm, it in, the in way that depth. we have listened to this album <laughs> yeah clearly like a lot of this was come from Chad you know this thing that um, A.A. Milne owned this house where Brian Jones the guitarist of Rolling Stones died in the swimming pool mm. and there's this whole sub wing of like the Manson fan thing which is like that he is a reincarnation of Brian Jones and he looks like Brian Jones Chad. Look a lot, yeah. and so he was fascinated by that he can play incredibly um, I don't think he knows that much about classic blues riffs though from probably not no all this stuff which is layered and layered and layered but when you actually look at it it's kind of like I think it's one of the reasons why the cover of the record is so silly it's because they want to make explicit all these references they don't want you to dig so much into... So I can't imagine how the cover could be different. How would you draw this record on yeah. it, as in a record sleeve? And if so when I saw it, I was like... It's horrible. It's awful. Like, this is the thing with it. It's like, it was so testing as a fan of the band yeah. at the time as well. I was, like, kind of going into my kind of, like, army jackets with, like, black nail varnish phase and stuff like that as well. And you get this record, and this is pre-internet stuff, really. You, like, look at you pick it up in the scene, and you're like, is this the right album? Because it literally... Like, I can't put this record on. It's, like, um, it's so obnoxious, the artwork. This is this is it. I remember my first listening of it, um, obviously willing to love a record in the way that you do when you get something from a band that you really like as well. And that, that was a factor, but it was challenging to start with. And yeah, I was going to ask you, did you love it straight away? I'd heard Legacy before, which was the lead single. I remember being a bit disappointed by Legacy. So now I love it. Now it's one yeah. of my favourite things they've done. But when I heard it, I thought this is very safe for them. Mm. And I was expecting, I think, that they've sold out safe thing. Mm. And then you hit play on it and you get the opposite of that. Yeah. And it was and it was relieving. I think the Sugar Plum Fairy jarred and that Shotgun jarred on first listen. I loved Shotgun. Inverse Midas, I like, loved it. I loved Shotgun because I think it worked for me. It worked from the off, and I love like the tempo of it. Yeah, it's a great. It's it, now it's it's a definite album highlight. Like I would recommend mm. it to music lovers, but I think at the time. And I mean, the first minute of it again is very silly because it's got all these cartoon samples. Supposedly, they're writing a cartoon theme from the eighties. That's the whole idea of that section. But then suddenly it goes into all this stuff about towers. Half blocks, isn't it? It's yeah, and Confucius. Yeah. And I fully uh, understand the shotgun in my pillow is an uncarved block at hand. Yeah, I mean, life what? is sweet, but no man <laughs> sleeps for Buddha. It's, um, it's just crazy. And there's another bit that runs under it, which I can't remember it exactly. Again, it's quoted in the blog, and it's like it's all out of time with the music. Oh yeah, in the back, yeah, whizzing through. Um, but the overarching feeling I get from all this stuff is like it's it's not that it's half baked because it really all of these things totally yeah. mesh, but it's just that they are being very selective about how those things are going to fit. But to put it all very explicitly on the cover is an odd choice. Mm. But I, I, it's almost arguably, like a Kubrickesque approach to making a record, isn't it? It's right. like everything is there for a reason, and if you think something sounds a bit odd or a line is a bit odd probably is because it is of value and that for a puzzle of a record is a real thing to yeah enjoy to have all these books be explicitly mentioned on the cover i feel like the the sleeve is there to kind of invite the conversation that if you just gave the record to people i mean again this is the 90s where sleeves were more important mm. to music and it harks back to an era of 12-inch sleeves yeah. that was even more important than the 90s was in what went on on a record. But I think it's this cover is so ridiculous it creates that sort of comic mirror of the record which sort of, you know, if you just heard the music you'd go, this is all like nonsense. But when you see it all in one room and it looks like nonsense it's kind of like, well that, that's the joke. Isn't yeah. it? I always hated it. I still hate the cover. I think oh, it's a hard cover to love. It's going to be interesting now as well listening with what's happened time-wise because I think the Tom Baker interlude in which he delivers a poem over some opera singers and a harp school, which must have been another fun, fun budget. Oh, yeah. and, but now, since this has happened, obviously he's become more well known even than Doctor Who for a whole generation as the voice of Little Britain yeah. as well, which has travelled as well. So it's confusing hearing someone that normally gives these glib one-liners <laughs> <clears throat> ruminating on death yeah. in a big way. And, and it's, it's like my favourite line from that whole thing is something about did I miss take the friendly pats on the back as the hands that were pushing me down right it's just unbelievable <laughs> that is incredible that whole thing you know self-sabotage paranoia about everyone it's just and it is explicitly supposed to be about brian jones drowning in swing pool and yet it's a microcosm of what the whole record is about talking about this i think this might be the greatest album of all time i think <laughs> i think we can laugh but you can't do this with sergeant pepper seriously <laughs> 
definitely better than Sergeant Pepper's. Um, Probably not as good as Revolver. But it never had a classic status. No, no, it's been hated. It, like it was derided when it came out. And like. I don't think time has improved it. Let's no. say. It's what it was at the time. I it's think. an it's an oddity in the curio. I think it's it was odd then. It's odd now. It doesn't it doesn't fit, and that's why it's so interesting because it's like the odd, odd child. It was like their last. Mm. As far as I'm concerned, the last thing they had to say as a band was this the, record. The third. Because uh, everything that yeah. comes after, to me, just sounds like they're spent. Mm. I think they were. I think it was a creative thing. I actually spoke with Paul about the third record. They basically took his demos for the record and they were like, yeah, this is fine, we'll just get them mixed for you. And he went in the production setup that he wasn't happy with, with a band that just was tired. Um, they put out unfinished stuff and he kind of, having been so ingrained in this process mm. and caring about every single moment, sort of gave up and played at the, the label way of playing it. D- okay, we'll a, do it your way. Yeah, and I sort of like the opening section, which is a new beginning or yeah, something. Yeah. Like how that it, yeah. it promises like a band sort of jamming, but that never seems to materialise. No. And there's some awful things on there as well, like you know, we are the boys. Uh, what I like about it is, is that it ends very abruptly, because the last track is called Goodbye, yeah. and it seems to end halfway through a bar or something. It just kind of chops, yeah. and that's how I like to think of Manson. Really, it's kind of like they were done. Yeah, end. It wasn't even time yeah. to finish this the song or hear the applause. It just went. It's a puzzle, isn't it? They're a puzzle of a band. I still feel like, even though we've talked about it for an hour, I still can't imagine anyone it throwing light on what this is. Because it's just such it's a weird to be, thing, isn't it? It's like waiting for Godot or something. You're not meant to understand everything. <laughs> just enjoy it. You go down the rabbit hole and you enjoy it and you pick at these things mm. and that, but ultimately it's a silly yeah. pop record by a, a yeah, finished band. The point of doing a podcast like this is to to rail against that idea that you can somehow find some some logic and uh, by discussing a record and i hope people have at least it makes them feel curious about what this My thing god is. yeah if 10 people listen to six off the back of this yeah. or are confused and <laughs> excited by it it's, it's exhilarating and inspirational and you know there are lessons in there i think in terms of what they're trying to put across but also in terms of what not to do and that as well yeah and i think that's the weird thing when i think about manson it's kind of like there's something that's not right about it i think guilty pleasure is a slightly kind of misleading idea that you would listen to music and and feel like you shouldn't be enjoying it because music is music Mm. but when i still listen to manson and whether it's the earlier records the eps or whatever where you just kind of feel like this shouldn't work like as a band like the way they've structured everything you know the, the press shots even. <laughs> it's just <laughs> that even just like how the bass works against the drums and like the sonic choices which seem quite alien to me mm. like for me it was always about like bass should be melodic but it should fit with a kick drum and it should sound like fugazi and it should you know it should aspire to being stone roses you know that's the particular lineage of like rock thinking mm. That Manson just doesn't have. It's like there's something. Because they just didn't odd. know what they were doing. I, I really feel like right. a big part of it is not knowing what they were doing and just going for it and being like, we're confident, we've got this, it's fine. Yeah. I feel like going on that journey with this whole record, the whole thing is like they're obviously very competent musicians and obviously incredibly talented songwriters, but they don't know what they're doing. It's the fun of it. They're just like, no, but that, no, but that is it. It's like yeah. it's, it's almost. It's it's overthinking. But it's also like, yeah, put that in there, put that in there. Yeah, that's great. That's what you're reading. This is it. This is a mess. But life is a mess, and life is a compromise. Is <laughs> life is a compromise. Life is a compromise. Music can be, it can be Captain Beefheart. Mm. It can be so atonal and sort of free that you almost don't hear it as music straight away. And then at the other end of it, it's One Direction, and it's like it's structured in such a particular way that it sort of forces you to yeah. s- hear it in a particular way. Emotional but response here. In the middle. There's so much scope to drift one way, and I think Manson clearly were torn between pop production mm. and then just like saying yeah. it shouldn't have any structure. It should be atonal and like wrong and weird and yeah. and it, and, I would have loved and not it knowing where they were in that mm. needle that was swinging to and fro. Definitely. And uh, the day the day they handed it into the label must have been the best day ever as well. Just like. <laughs> I think it's testament to enough people that are involved in it said it should stand as mm. it is. Whether it flies and is successful or it is a complete flop, 
we'll, we'll see. You get, I think you used to get past <laughs> on album two back, back then with the majors and stuff, which was nice. And I think that that was there. Trust. It did, yeah, it did well as well. I think Legend says it was number six in the charts. Okay. But I think oh, really? it, I think it actually got convenient. as high as two. I think sold sold some records. Mm. You know, back then that was probably like three times more than your average number one now. Yeah. So. Well, there you go. <laughs> you know, happy uh, days. That it is not been messed around with. It's like it's been left to be the record that it is, and you either kind of it leaves you cold or it's confusing or you're drawn into it and you and you continue to find stuff in it and that's the, the case as far as I'm concerned clearly it is for you even though there is some naffness to it which undoubtedly which is a very British way of putting it that's okay because that's kind of how it was supposed to sound in the beginning it's, exactly it remains what it was 